Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone, and welcome to 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. The two Golden Age radio shows, Escape and Suspense, were radio's leading anthology series of high adventure and drama, with Escape airing on CBS Radio from July 7, 1947 to September 25, 1954, and Suspense continued to 1962. These two shows presented great American-made radio drama, which became the foundation for TV. Radio, as you know, is purely acoustic, with no visual component, and it relied on great scriptwriters and actors to enable the listeners to imagine the characters and the story. It was high drama, great acting, and terrific stories. As one of the shows say, all designed for you from the four walls of today. Here we offer the very best of escape and suspense. We hope you enjoy this week's presentation. And if you do, send us a kind review for 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. And now, our two stories. Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape. You are in mid-ocean, aboard a jinx ship. Already nine men have died. And you know that some malignant force is aimed at you from which you cannot escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to the North Atlantic in the year 1900 and to a sailing ship whose very name struck dread in sailors' hearts, as Joseph Conrad told it in his famous story, The Brute. tell it just by looking at her, proud and strong and beautiful on the outside. You couldn't see the black heart inside of her, and you'd never know she'd killed at least a dozen men and maybe more. But I knew her, knew her for the murdering she-devil she was. I saw the day she killed her first one, and I was there too when she finally made a big mistake and killed the wrong person. But that was a long time later. Oh, she had a name all right. But after that first day, her first killing, nobody but the family ever used it again. Everyone else from that day on would look at her, half afraid and half snarling, and they called her the Brute. I remember I was 14 the day my father took me down to the South Thames boatyard to watch the launching of the ship. My brother Charlie was there, of course, Eight years older than me and very proud of his one gold stripe, now that he'd be made an officer on the Epps line. Charlie and father were talking. I just stood and listened to them and didn't say much of anything myself. Look at her, Dad. Ever see a ship in your life with lines like that? I bet she'll outsail any clipper in the China trade. Well, that remains to be seen, Charlie. How soon are they going to launch her? Any minute now. Oh, I'd give a lot to be sailing on her, instead of on the Malcolm Epps. Well, the Malcolm's a good ship, son. As good a ship as any of the Epps family owns. Oh, I'm not kicking. I'm glad enough to be through apprenticeship and get my commission. But even at that, I'd almost rather be a bosun on this ship than third mate on the Malcolm. I understand that Colchester's to be her captain. Yes, that's right. Oldest commander with the absent son's line. Look at the size of her, Dad. She's a full 2,000 tons. Less half a ton, Charlie. Oh, good morning, Mr. German. Uh, Mr. Wilmot. Hello, Ned. How do you do, sir? No, Charlie, she came to 1,999 and a half when we measured the rope. Well, 2,000 tons or not, Mr. German, you'll never build a better ship than this one. I don't know, Charlie. I built it the way Mr. Ops wanted there. 
She's big and she's stout, but I don't know. And what's your reason for saying that, sir? No reason that makes any sense. About the devil's own time with her. Cabin doors jamming when they shouldn't. Edge covers that wouldn't fit after they'd been measured up. Blocks fouling for no reason at all. Uh, I don't know, Mr. Wilmot. But if she were a human being, I'd say that maybe she's insane. Oh, come now. You've been working too hard, Mr. Jamin. Better take a vacation now that she's finished. Well, I could certainly use... I say, that's Maggie Colchest up there, the captain's niece. Is she going to do the christening? That's right, Charlie. And I'd better get down below now. My own men are going to knock the stays loose and let her slide down into the water. Well, good luck, Mr. Jamin. Thanks, Mr. Wilmot. Come on board for the celebration after she's lodged. Bring the boy. Fine, thank you. We should be there. Now, let it go any minute now. Dad, I'm going to sail on that ship someday. Oh, you'll probably sail on a lot of Apsline ships before you're through, Charlie. Look. Look, they've given Maggie I the champagne you. now, and she's going to christen yes, it. Uh, yes, uh, listen. I christen thee, the Apps family. The Apps family. So that's what they're naming, eh? All right, men. Knock out the stairs. Let her go. Look, Dad, she's starting to move. There she goes. Yes, and look at that speed. I never saw it. Jamin, look out! Good Lord, he fell right into the waist and she... She went over him. He didn't fall. A timber rolled off the deck and knocked him under. She slid right over him. Mr. Jamin, the man who built her. She's lost in blood, if that means anything. She's a brute and a murderess now, Charlie. Still think you'd like to sail on her? It was an accident. It doesn't mean anything. Perhaps not. I'll sail on her someday, sooner or later. I will sail on her. Well, the way things worked out, I was the one to sail on her first instead of Charlie. He'd gone on out to the Orient aboard the Malcolm. And six months later, when I started my apprenticeship, I found the company had assigned me to report to Captain Colchester on the Apps family, or the Brute, as everybody was calling it privately. There was some kind of mix-up in the sailing orders, and by the time I came on board, a tug already had a line on the big sailing ship and was starting to ease her stern first out into the channel. All right now, ease ahead there. Pick up the slack. Captain Colchester was at the taffrail shouting orders to the tug captain and the mates were forward somewhere, handling the check line. You've got the slack now. Haul away! I stood at the waist, waiting for a chance to report in, and watching a young fellow about my own age who was doing something or other up aloft on the mizzenmast above me. The tug had drawn the line out taut, but the ship hadn't started to move yet. You've got no way on her yet. Turn your engine up to full speed. The tug was churning the water to froth, and the hawser was tight as a bowstring, but we still didn't move. Keep her up! Then suddenly the ship gave a lurch and started back like a bucking horse. The men forward had no chance to ease the check cable and a second later it snapped. The ship plunged on back and then sheared off to bring up a smash against the pierhead that knocked me sprawling on the deck. And at that moment... The lad who'd been working aloft on the mast crashed down onto the deck not ten feet away from me. And he lay there without moving. Give a hand up here on my waist, mate. Young Hawkins just fell out of the tops. Hey. That's too bad. Is he... Is he dead, Captain Colchester? He's dead, boy. You get a hold of yourself. Don't stand there trembling. You never seen anybody die before? Yes, sir. On the day they launched this ship. Oh, Jermaine, eh? You're young Ned Wilmot, I suppose, the new apprentice. Yes, sir. And no doubt you may have heard this ship called by an unpleasant name once in a while. Yes, sir. The Brute. Well, you'll be kind enough to remember while you're aboard that her name is the Apps family and she's had her share of accidents the same as any other ship. Is that quite clear? Yes, sir. Now get along forward with you and stow your gear away on the forecastle. You'll take over young Hawkins' duties for the time being. Yes, sir. I sailed aboard the Brute for the next four years and watched her kill nine men during the time. We got so we tried to outguess her, try to figure how she'd do it the next time. But no matter what we think, we never were right. And it wasn't only the killing, it was everything. Most ships have little ways all their own, and you'll learn about them and allow for them. Ah, but not her. She was like a, a crazy woman. You never knew what she'd do next. I remember once off the Gold Coast, she ran before a gale for two days as pretty as you please. And then broached to twice in the same afternoon. 
flung the helmsman clean over the wheel the first time, and the second time swamped herself fore and aft and split out every stitch of canvas. And after we got the decks cleaned up, we found one seaman had gone overboard. He was her fifth, I guess it was. Or maybe the sixth. Oh, she was beautiful, the Apps family was. Big and proud and beautiful. And along with it, a killer. Black-hearted, sea-going brute. My brother Charlie was on the China run all that time. First on the Malcolm and later on the Lucy Epps. But we never happened to hit port on the same time. Finally, the time of my apprenticeship was up. We boomed into London at the end of the trip. And I went before the board for my papers. <laughs> I guess they figured anybody who could stay alive for four years on the brute must be a seaman. Anyway, I passed, and Mr. Epps handed me my sailing orders along with the commission. I was assigned as third mate to Captain Colchester on the Epps family. Well, congratulations, Ned. Glad you're going to stay with us. Thanks, Captain Colchester. You've been a hard-working apprentice, and I've no doubt for what you'll be a good officer. In fact, we have a man on board who'll make sure of that. Why? What do you mean, Captain... Got a new first mate on this trip. Come in, Charlie. Charlie? Well, hello there, youngster. I say, you've been doing a bit of growing in the last five years. Charlie, I didn't even know you were in port. <laughs> been in for a week down country, though. I hear you fooled the board. Careful, man. You're talking about your own third mate. Yes, so they tell me. Well, you'll be jumping lively on this trip, my boy. <laughs> easy, easy. Don't forget, I know this ship and you don't. And I'll learn it quick enough. Been wanting the chance for a long time. And between us, I think we can even break this jinx. Lads, there'll be no talk of a jinx on this trip. At least not in the cabin, as long as Maggie's going along. Maggie? Who's Maggie? Ask your brother. I think he's the one who talked her into the trip. Although she claims it's for her health. <laughs> I'll leave you two to get acquainted. We'll be about ten days loading if you've got any plans. What's he talking about, Charlie? Who's Maggie? His niece, Maggie Colchester. You remember her, the girl who christened the ship? Of course. Ollie, well, he hasn't not... Dad told you where I've been spending shore leaves for the last year and a half? No, Charlie, I didn't know anything about it. Well, then let me show you something. Here. Now, if I have my way, Maggie will be wearing this before the trip's over. Here, take a look. Blimey. That's all right. Yes, I bought it in Cape Town. It's a blue-white diamond set in platinum. Is it big enough to go on her finger? Oh, it's big enough, all right. And that's where it's going if I can talk her into it. And who's going to talk who into what, Charlie? Oh, uh, Maggie, I was um, saying that um, um, I hoped I could talk you into going ashore for dinner with me. Oh, where are you now? <laughs> you big liar. Oh, Maggie, this is my brother Ned. Ned, this is Maggie. How do you do? And are you one of the officers, too? I I'm the new third mate. Well, I certainly hope you're more truthful than your brother. Maggie. Whose invitation to dinner... I am accepting with pleasure. Oh, really? See you both later. All right, you are. About an hour. Charlie, she, she's lovely. Well, she's more than that, Ned. She's everything as far as I'm concerned. Well, in that case, good luck. I hope you get her. Well, we'll see about that. Anyway, with Maggie aboard, we've got to make sure this jinx ship stays on good behavior for once. Well, it'll be the first time if she does. And it's the first time we've had both the Wilmots on board together. We'll tame her down, Ned. We'll make her calm and peaceful as an old workhorse. Just you wait and see if we don't. And the strange part of it was, he was right. We stood out past Gravesend and made the passage to the China coast in 121 days of the finest weather you could ever hope to meet. And for the first time in her bloody life, the old ship settled down and sailed herself as neat as you please. Charlie and I had talked about it sometimes when Maggie wasn't around, and he'd always laugh and say the brute knew when she'd met her match that she didn't dare try to buck the two of us. But I, I was more ready to give the credit to Maggie, to think maybe she'd charm the old murderess the way she charmed all the rest of us. From the second day out, Maggie was the secret darling of every man on board. She was all over the ship, here, there, and everywhere, with red tam and her bright blue eyes, never still a minute, and having the time of her life. If she'd come along for her health, 
She'd found it before we passed Gravesend. We raised a storm on the passage back and ran four days in a heavy gale. I stood by and held my breath, ready for anything, and nothing happened. The old lady, Epps' family, held up her head and sailed along like a seagull. Any time before, she'd have buried her gunnel in the quartering seas. But now, all the water she shipped, you could put in a teacup. A hundred and nine days from Hong Kong, we raised the Dungness light, and early the next morning, picked up a tug off Sheerness for the long tow upriver to London. The ship followed along on the tow line like a puppy on a leash, and we moved slowly up the river past Gravesend. All of us were glad to be home, but Maggie, most of all, I think, because she'd never been at sea so long before. I had to smile at the way she danced around in the bows, picking out one landmark after another as we came to them, sometimes standing up on the spare anchor we'd taken in on the foredeck in order to get a better look at the riverbanks ahead. She wasn't wearing the ring yet, but I knew she was going to and was only teasing Charlie as long as possible. What's wrong, Ned? A tug stopped her engines. Collision up ahead in the channel, Charlie. Looks like a yawl and a schooner fouled together. Oh, yes. Well, looks like they're clearing it up now. Guess we can move again in a couple of minutes. Maggie, why don't you go on the after deck? You're on the way up forward there. Oh, I'm all right, Charlie. Stop worrying. We're almost home. <laughs> Better save your orders for the crew, Charlie. She outranks you. Oh, I'll take orders from her any day. Yes. We are almost home, Ned. We've had a lucky voyage. It's the first halfway peaceful trip I've ever made in the old brute. Oh, I told you we'd tame her down. She's turned over a new leaf, Ned. Well, it won't last long if she keeps on shearing off there and drifting back down the channel. Huh? Oh, yes. We're heading straight for those fishing smacks. Better have the tug start up and hold a taut line on her. I've seen her do this before. Yes. Ahoy, the tug! Take up the slack and get her straight in the channel. Hold it against the current. Any other ship would have held steady for the two or three minutes we stopped, but not the old Epps family. And now when the tug tightened up in the hawser, pulling at an angle across her bows, she wouldn't respond, wouldn't budge. The old girl wanted her own way. She was just as stubborn as ever. Ahoy, the tug! We're still drifting. Open up to full speed. Confound her. Never saw a ship back like this. The heavy hawser was pulled so tight it was humming, and Tug's paddles with her engines full whipped up the water like a mill race. And then it happened. The heavy towing chock tore loose from the deck. The hawser began sliding across the bow, ripping out rail stanchions like matchsticks. Then I saw it was going to sweep under the fruits of the spare anchor, the anchor that Maggie was standing on. Maggie! Get off that anchor! Look out! tried to jump clear, but she was too late. The great anchor had tipped up on its side, clasped her about the waist like a monstrous arm of steel. It had carried her with it and swung down and over and smashed against the side of the ship. She went into the water. Take charge of the deck, Ned. I'm going in after her. Ned! Ned, was that Maggie? Yes, sir. She's, she's overboard, Captain Coulter, sir. Maggie. Oh, the dirty, murdering brute. Now it's women she's killing. Let go the port anchor! All the ship is she is and get the boats over! I hadn't told Charlie, and I didn't say anything about it to Captain Colchester, but I stood there, and I knew it wasn't any use, because I'd seen the way the heavy anchor had carried her over, and then swung in to smash her against the bow before it dropped her into the water. And I'd seen the way that water beneath the bow was all colored red. found her at late afternoon when the tide turned and she floated clear of one of the mo mooring boys. And the next morning, we tied up in the London docks. The men had been happy at coming into their home port, but now they remembered how she'd been happy too, their own darling. I'd never before seen a crew leave a ship so quietly, and some of them, when they reached the wharf, turned back and cursed her under their breath. Finally, it was only Charlie and I, alone on the quarterdeck, and Captain Colchester was below somewhere in the cabin. She never wore it, Ned. The ring. 
She never wore but it. But she, she would have, Charlie. I know she meant to. She, she was just having a little fun with you, that's all. With all of us on board, why did the brute have to go for Maggie? Why? I guess there's not much answer for that. She's everything I wanted. Everything. Yes, Charlie. I know. I talked her into making the voyage. It was my idea. It's no good, Charlie, this kind of thinking. I guess you know that. I don't know. She's everything I wanted. Charlie, I... Oh, Mr. Wilmer. Over here, Captain. I'm going ashore. The shipkeeper's come aboard now. The two of you are free to go whenever you like. Thank you, sir. Charlie, I... Nothing. I'm resigning command in the morning. I'll never sit foot on board her again as long as I live. I feel the same way, sir. Well, come into the company office in a day or two and sign out for the log. Good day, gentlemen. Charlie, we'd better go ashore, too. We're done here. Yes, I... I suppose we are. I'll arrange to have our gear picked up later. There's no use of... Uh, uh, Captain, look out! Missed him! That, that yard arm off the mainmast fell right behind him. Ah, you missed me, you murdering brute! And that was your last chance! Ned, oh! Ned, that yard was made fast to Dungeness. And now it falls out of the tops with the ship lying still at the wharf. Yes, Charlie. Come on, let's go ashore. Wasn't the devil satisfied for one trip? Is there no way of stopping her? How many more does she want to kill? Charlie... Oh, Ned. Ned, take me home. Charlie was ten years older by the time we reached home, and it was two weeks before he'd do anything more than sit in his room and stare at the wall, saying nothing. Captain Colchester carried out his threat and resigned from the company the morning after we docked and I filed my application for a transfer. The app's family was reloaded and ready to sail, but she stayed on lying at the wharf with nobody to take her out. And that's the way things stood for two weeks until one morning a bombshell dropped. Hello, Ned. Charlie, I wondered where you went this morning. And I left the house early. How do you feel? Fine. Ned, Mr. Epps tells me you've applied for a transfer. Another ship. Well, yeah, yes, I did, as a matter of fact. You saw old man Epps? Yes, I stopped in at the office this morning. Ned, it's up to you, of course, but I hope you'll change your mind. Not a chance. The ship sails tomorrow morning. Oh, so they finally found somebody crazy enough to take her out? Yes, they did. Me. You? You're going to skip of the brute? That's right, Ned. But I... I it's thought... a short voyage, North Atlantic run. Be awfully glad to have you along. Somebody I can depend on if you feel like signing on again. Charlie! Of course, it's up to you. All right, Charlie. I'll sign on again. Be glad to. <laughs> out past the Sheerness Light and headed north, hugging a lee shore in a stiff breeze. The ship drove ahead as steady as a barge, with scarcely a roll or a quiver. But in spite of the smooth and easy way she handled, I couldn't help feeling uneasy. I could sense the black spirit of her brooding somewhere down inside, mocking and taunting us with her bloody memories, and waiting for a new chance. By nightfall, we were running hard in along the Kettling coast, where those rocky headlands break at intervals out of the shelving sandy beaches. The onshore wind held steady in our quarter, and the sun sank down behind the land some three miles away. It wasn't quite full dark yet when Charlie sent for me. I came up to where he was standing alone near the wheel. That you, Ned? Right, Charlie. Boson said you wanted to see me. Yes. I did send for you, Ned. Hold as steady as she goes, close to the wind. Aye, sir. I've been standing here, thinking about Maggie, Ned. How she scrambled around over the decks, making friends with everybody, having the time of her life. Charlie, you've got to stop it. 
No, I'm all right. I like to think about her. It's this ship and all the memories around it. It's what I was afraid of. No, no, it's all right. Ned, I want you to take charge of the crew and give an order. Of course, you'll question the order, but you'll carry it out anyway. Do you understand? What's... What's the order, Charlie? Have all hands prepared to abandon ship. What? But why? There's nothing wrong. Mr. Wilmot, it is not an officer's place to question an order by the captain. You'll do as you're told. Yes, sir. You can give the order now, Mr. Wilmot. Charlie, I can't let you... Very well, Captain. All hands on deck! Stand by the boat! Prepare to abandon ship! All right, helmsman. Find your place in the boats. I'll take over the wheel. Aye, sir. You don't know what you're doing, Charlie. We're in no danger. There's no reason to abandon ship. You're always in danger aboard this black-hearted brute. I'll put on the quarter now. You can get the boats in the water when she yields. Hurry on. Steady! Going on the quarter! Easy on. All right. Now. All hands! We shouldn't have any trouble running ashore to that beach there at the south. Hey, what about you? I'll hold her steady until everybody's clear. You'd better go over the side. Your boat's standing there. Oh, no, not until you do. I'm staying with you, Charlie. Don't be a fool, Ned. I'm doing this alone. No, Charlie, not while I'm here. Mr. Wilmot, you will abandon ship and take charge of the boats in the water, and that's an order. Charlie, I can't... Mr. Wilmot! Very well, Captain. That's the spirit, lad. Learn to obey orders and step lively. You'll be a seaman yet. Good luck, Ned. Thanks, Charlie. Stand by for you in the boat. Of course, lad. Fine. Bye. I slipped over the gunwale and dropped down into the boat that trailed alongside on a line from the rail. I'd hardly hit the bottom when the line slackened. I knew Charlie had cut us loose from the ship. He was alone on an hour, alone in the night sea with a black brute. He's laid it over, away from the wind. Charlie had put the helm over hard. With a terrible shudder of her dark sails and a smother of white foam from her bows, the great ship heeled about in a sharp turn and then began to drive ahead like some mad thing before the wind. Straight before the wind and straight toward the shore. Look, sir, the rocks on the headland. She's going to smash herself. Faster and faster she plunged ahead through the weltering seas, faster and faster on the back of the gale, while the black-hearted spirit of her screamed in the rat-lines. Look, sir, the rocks! What in the name of heaven is he going to do? And now, for one long instant, she hung poised at the top of a plunge and then drove smashing downward onto the... as we dared for three hours while the killer ship pounded herself to bits in the surging sea. But we didn't find my brother Charlie. And from the first minute, I knew we wouldn't. Because just before I'd left the ship, there by the helm, in the light of the binnacle lamp, I'd seen the thing he was holding clenched tight in his hard brown fist. It was a tiny platinum ring set with a blue-white diamond. Escape is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, and tonight brought to you The Brute by Joseph Conrad, adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield, featuring Dan O'Herlihy as Ned Wilmot and Eric Rolfe as Charlie Wilmot, with Nina Carlton as Maggie, Jeff Corey as Captain Colchester, Wilms Herbert as German, and Parley Bear as the father. 
Music is conceived and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Next week. You are far into the remote hill country of Afghan. Caught in an ambush by the fierce Pathan tribes. Trapped in a hopeless fight from which there seems no escape. Next week, we escape with Rudyard Kipling's gripping story, The Drums of the Fore and Aft. Good night, then, until the same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Tired out from spring house cleaning? Find your life uninteresting? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! You are drifting on the burning glassy surface of a tropical sea, trapped on a flimsy raft with three murderous companions from whom you cannot escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, at your request, we bring back one of our most popular escape stories. We take you to Noumea in the South Pacific, a French penal colony as notorious as Devil's Island. And we invite you to escape from Noumea in John Russell's The Fourth Man. The raft stood to open sea. A mat of pandanus leaves served for its sail and a paddle of wood for its helm. Its flooring was woven of reeds and bamboo sticks and rested on triple rows of bladders. It was light, elastic, fit to ride any weather, and it carried four men. Three of them sat huddled together at the far end. Their bodies were blackened with dried blood. The hair upon them was long and matted. They wore only the rags of convicts' blue canvas uniforms. On wrists and ankle they carried their mark, the dark and wrinkled stain of the manacles. There was Dubose, doctor, leader, man of the world, murderer. Friends, the thing is done. And Fenero, forger, ladies' man, weakling, coward. Yes, we got away, all right. And the one known as the parrot, thief and cutthroat. So far, so good. Gentlemen, by way of celebration, may I offer you cigarettes? C cigarettes? Ah. Oh, Doctor, you're a marvel, a magician. Look at them, white and fresh as though they just came from the package. Ah, how did you do it? Every six months, there are about 75 escapes from Numia. And not more than one succeeds. Ours would be that one I knew. Mm. And so, Three weeks ago, I bribed the night guard for these very cigarettes so that we might sit here, my friends, as we are doing and celebrate. I, I want a light. Uh, yes, a light for the parrot. Mm. Oh, our doctor is a wonder. He thinks of everything. He gives us cigarettes, matches, and our freedom. Wait, wait till you've got your two feet on a pavement again. That will be the time to talk about freedom. Mm. To wear starched collars again. To stroll with a girl, clean and fresh from her bath, down the Place de la Concorde, the Rue de Rivoli. Suppose, suppose we get a storm. It's not the season of storms. Just the same. Suppose we get a storm. Perrique, my friend, you must not be so impatient. We were convicts back there, festering in oblivion. And now we stand on the rosy threshold of the big round world again. We are men raised from the dead. Suppose we get a storm. <laughs> 
You have got a gift of speech, but, but where's the ship that was going to meet us here? This is the day as agreed. It will meet us. This wind will blow us to China if we keep up. We can't lie any closer to shore. There's a government launch at Torion, and I doubt if the native trackers have given up yet. Oh, careful, Baron. They will eat you yet. <laughs> I, I, I've heard about that. Is it true, Doctor, that the natives keep all the runaways they can capture to fatten on them? <laughs> they prefer the reward. Still, I doubt if they've entirely lost the habit of cannibalism. <laughs> yes, piece by piece, Baron. First they will sample you, then they will make a stew of your brains. They won't miss a thing. Shut up, Fenaru! The filthy brutes. You know, I forgot. We have one of them with us. The fourth man was steering the raft. He sat crouched in the stern, his body glistening with spray. His huge dark hands held the steering paddle. He was motionless like an idol, his eyes fixed on the course ahead, the fourth man on the raft. My friends, you are looking at a Kanaka. You will see nothing superior. No line of beauty to redeem the low angle of the forehead, the knobby joints of the body. Nature has stamped him with the mark of inferiority. And he has set the final seal himself with that twist of bark about his middle, that prong of pig ivory through his nose. Mm. Nonetheless, he is a man, and there is a price on our heads. He, he could be taking us where he lies. Calm yourself in a row. He's a very simple animal. An infant, really. Uh, does that mean he could not double-cross us? He does. He is bound by his duty. I made my bargain with his chief up the river. And this one is sent to deliver us on board our ship. That's the only interest he has in us. And he will do it? He will. It is the nature of the native. Ah, uh, I don't trust him. Not for a minute. The brute. The animal. You! It's you I'm talking about, you filthy brute! Parrot! Save your breath, Parrot. He speaks no language, only a few noises, a few signs. I don't feel right on the same raft with, with that. Uh, go on, burn yourself up in this sun. Me, oh, me, I will just stretch out a little under these mats. Yes. We should all sleep a little. We can serve ourselves. When we awake, she'll be there, the ship. Our pretty little topsail schooner. Our mast standing out against the sky. And we'll be on our way to France. Sleep, my friend. The two younger convicts dozed under the heat of the day. But not Dr. Dubose. He stood once again to sweep the skyline under his shaded hand. His plan had been so careful, so precise, he had counted absolutely on meeting the ship, the small schooner. One of those flitting, half-piratical traders of the Copra Islands that can be hired like cabs in a dark street for any sinister enterprise. But there was no ship, and there was no crossroads where one might sit and wait. Good morning, Doctor. It's afternoon, Fenero. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, I slept like a corpse. And where's the ship, Doctor? It was going to be there when we awoke. Oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, I'm dying of thirst. So be all, Fenero. Where is the flask? Oh, I'm roasted in the sun. You'll have to roast some more. This crew is put on rations. What are you talking about? Where is that water? I have it here. So you have. You think it's yours? It's ours, Parrot. I want a drink. Think a little, Parrot. We have to guard our supplies like reasonable men. We don't know how long we may be floating here. So, that's how you talk now. You don't know how long. But you were sure enough when we started. I am still sure. The ship will come. She cannot stay for us in one spot. She will be cruising to and fro until she intercepts us. We must wait. Ah, that's good, good. Wait, wait. And in the meantime, what? 
fry here in this heat? Uh, our tongues hanging out while you deal us out drop by drop? Perhaps. No! The man does not live who can feed me with a spoon. With <laughs> a spoon? Laugh, <laughs> you scum! But you're in this too, with this, this captain who thinks of everything and still puts to sea without provisions. Go on, laugh again, laugh. I, I wasn't laughing, Parrot. It's true. A, a bad piece of work for a captain of runaways. Unless you would die very speedily, we must guard our water. And whose fault is it? Mine, I admit it! What then? Here we are and here we must stay. We can only do our best with what we have. All right, Doctor. Do your best. Give me a drink. You may have your share, of course. But be warned. When it is gone, don't come to us. To Fenero and me. Oh, what's fair is fair. My drink! Very well. A thimble food? One thimble? This way we should have enough for three days. Perhaps more. With equal shares among the three of us. That's right. There are only three of us. <laughs> Who are you thinking of him, Fenero? Of our pilot? He looks somewhat like us, doesn't he? But his body has never known clothing. His feet, shoes. His heart has never known the swelling that comes with feelings of love or beauty. His mind has never known a single thought. Look at us three gentlemen. You, Fenero, a forger. You, Parrot, a thief. I, the Gibbons of Paris and Marseille, a murderer. And yet, we are civilized men. And this is a savage animal. Our provisions are for men only. The three men awoke to their second day on the raft. They looked and saw the far round horizon and the empty desert of the sea and their own long shadows that slipped slowly before them over its smooth, slow heaving. The land had sunk away from them in the night. The trap had been sprung. As the savage sun kindled upon them with the power of a burning glass, a calm fell, an absolute calm. The air hung, waited. The sea heaved and fell in polished undulations, and the sun shone driving in under their eyelids like white-hot splinters. They crawled to the shelter of their mats, gasping, shriveling. And the water, the world of water, was slack and thick as oil. Ah, oh, mon Dieu. How lonely it is. Captain Rebels. Yes, Parrot. Look around you. What do you mean? Burn, look around. What do you see? I see water, Parrot, the horizon, nothing else. What? Don't you see a ship? A pretty little schooner? Those were your words. Well, where is it? Why didn't you see it? It will come. Will it comfort us to be dead when it comes? Doctor, you say that you can't on your friends, but suppose they leave you to rot here, leave Parrot and me to rot here. That would be a joke, eh, Doctor? To wait for a ship that will never come? It will come. My friends will not fail me. But why? How do you know? How, how can you be so sure? There is a safety vault in Paris, full of papers to be opened at my death. Huh? Those papers contain confessions. <laughs> no, gentlemen, my friends will not fail me. <sighs> Parrot. Uh? A moment ago, you asked what I saw. Well? There was something I neglected. What was that? I see a Kanaka on this raft with us. He does not join us. He does not look at us. He sits on his heels in the way of the native, with his arms hugging his knees. He sits at the stern, motionless under the shattering sun, gazing out into vacancy. Whenever I raise my eyes, I see nothing else. Only this Kanaka. And he seems to be enjoying himself quite well. 
I was thinking so myself. The cannibal, the savage. He does not seem to suffer. What's going on in his brain? What does he dream there? He looks at us as though he hates us. The dirty rat. Maybe he's waiting for us to die. Maybe he's waiting for the reward. At least he wouldn't starve on the way home. And he could deliver us piece by piece. How does he do it? Has he not any feelings? I've been wondering about that. It may be that his fibers are, are tougher, his nerves but are stronger. But we have had enough. water and he has not. And yet, see, his skin, it's fresh and moist. And his belly, round as a melon. Don't tell me this savage is thirsty. Is there any way he could steal our supplies? Certainly not. Suppose he has his own supplies hidden. What? We see. Search the raft. Look for no, him. Yeah. Look under the mat. Under the mat. I told him this morning. Uh, no, here. Turn this one. Did you hear? No, not here. No, there. Doctor. Okay. Over there. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Ah. No. 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 You are mistaken. He has nothing hidden. You're wrong about him, Doctor, when you say he has no understanding. There is one thing he knows, and knows well. Pain. Don't hit him! No, not so much. There's come. That will teach you. Not so cheerful now, are you? Not so happy with your luck. That will make you feel. A higher race tramples the savage, with or without cause. And that is natural. And the savage creeps away into his place, with his hurts and his wrongs, and makes no sign and strikes no blow. And that is natural, too. Yes, that is all very well, Doctor. But we still must have our pilot. Come back, my friends, back under the mats. The glare of the sun is not so bad there. So the days dragged by, the second and the third, and now it was the fourth day, and still there was no breeze, and still there was no ship. Doctor? Yes? What do you stare at? At him, savage. Look at him and look at us. We are dying. Our powers are ebbing. And him? He's naked, wild, brutish. He's yet to give the slightest sign of complaint or weakness. Yes, yes, it's true. At night, he stretches out and sleeps. Those long hours when we wrestle and fight with despair, he sleeps like a child. Then in the morning, he resumes his place aft, unchanged, fixed. A growing wonder. Doctor. Is this a man or a fiend? A man is man. A miracle. It's a man and a very poor and wretched example of a man. You will find no lower type anywhere. Look at his cranial angle, the high ears, the heavy bones of his skull. He's scarcely above an ape. Then what? He has a secret. A secret? But we see him. Every move he makes, every minute. What, what chance has he for a secret? How absurd. Here are we three, children of the century, products of civilization. And here is this man who belongs before the Stone Age. In a set trial of fitness, of wits, of resources, is he to win? It's absurd. What kind of secret? I can't say. Perhaps some method of breathing, some strange posture he uses to cheat the sensations of the body. Such things are known among primitive peoples, known and jealously guarded, like the properties of certain drugs, the uses of hypnotism, who knows? We can know. We can find out. <laughs> to ask him? Useless. He will not tell. Why should he? We scorn him. We give him no share with us. We abuse him. And so he falls back on his own expedience. He remains silent, as he always has been, as he always will be. He never tells the secrets. They are the means by which he has survived from the depths of time, by which he may yet survive when all our wisdom is dust. There are a number of ways of learning secrets. I know them all. No power. It would be useless. 
he could stand any torture you might invent. You saw how he behaved before. Uh, it's not the way. Talk, talk! I'm tired of all this talk! Kill him and throw him over! Let's be rid of this thing! We gain nothing! Then what do you want? To beat him. That's what I want. To beat him at the game. For our own sakes, for our own racial pride, we must. To outlast him, to prove ourselves his masters. By better brain, by better organization and control. Watch him. Watch him, my friends. So that we may trap him. So that we may find him out and defeat him in the end. Watch. I will watch all right, you old windbag. I'm not sleeping anymore to leave you alone with that bottle. Oh, the bottle. Oh, the bottle. I, oh. I've been meaning to discuss our rations with you. Have you? We are running very short. I'm afraid we must all take a cut again. And what are we down to now, Doctor? Half a thimbleful. No. We must keep our weight. I say no! Then we'll put it to a vote. You say no, I say yes. Then they're all... Yes, 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 anything. But give me mine now. Then it's half a thimbleful of Monsieur Fenerou. <laughs> Your share, Fenerou. More, more, or I'll die. More. No more today. You must, you must. Oh, doctor. No more today. Look, a ship, a ship. Where, 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 where is it? Where is it? <laughs> What? The bottle, Doctor! What? He has the bottle! He, he drank the bottle! Look at him. You killed him with that oar. What about the bottle? There's some left. You caught him just in time. And you caught the bottle just in time. It seems I did. And there's no ship. There will be no ship. We are done because of you and your dirty promises that brought us here. Doctor, liar. Food. Don't come any closer. Unless you want this flask broken over your head. No, I would not want that. Oh, Barrett, Barrett, just think. Why should you and I fight? We can see this trouble through and win yet. This weather can't last forever. Besides, now here will be only two of us to divide the water, yes? Yes. That is true, is it not? Fenerou kindly leaves us his share. <laughs> An inheritance. All right. I'll take mine now. My share now, if you please. Later we shall see. So be it. Your share. Many thanks. And now, Fenerol share to me, please. As you say. <laughs> and now, another. Another good doctor. Three. That's enough, Barrett. No, Doctor. It is not enough. Now, I will take the oh, rest. Oh, Barrett, stop. My arm. Your arm. Oh, please. I will kill please. you if you don't. Thank you. You see, I, I have manners, haven't I? And, and I have wisdom, too. Because I have fooled a very wise man. <laughs> I toast you, Doctor. <laughs> the best man wins. <laughs> it was a very bright idea of yours. The best. So, the best man wins, but you forgot I am a doctor, didn't you? The water you would kill for has killed you. A man cannot go without water for four days, then drink his fill and still live. Go on, parrot. Gasp out your worthless life while I laugh.
<laughs> the best man always wins, Baron. The best man always. <laughs> So, the best man wins. Yes, Doctor. Forgot my knife, didn't you? Forgot me, lying at your feet, while you divided my share of the water. Came here for dead, did you? But I, Fenero, will outlast the two of you. Fenero, the best man always. When? You fool. The water is running out. back, Captain. The raft was here all the time, not ten miles away from us. Oh, that come. Such misfortune. Well, where are they, the passengers? We're too late. They're all dead. Will you mind your business? But one is stabbed to death, another is skull crushed, the other fried by the sun. All dead. Well, then, all the better. They'll cost nothing to feed. But how... Hogsheads, my friend, the hogsheads in the afterhold. Fill them nicely with brine, and there we are. I don't... I don't understand. <laughs> you're, you're dull, Marto, very dull. The gentleman's passage is all paid before we left Sydney. I contracted to bring back three escaped convicts. Well, I'll bring them back in pickle. So if you'll go back, Marto, and bring them aboard for the trip, I'll be much obliged. Very well. Oh, there's a fourth man on the raft, Captain. Mm -hmm. A Kanaka. Still alive. What do we do with him? A Kanaka? No word in my contract about any Kanakas. Leave him there. After all, he's only a savage. And so Dr. Dubose and Fenero and the parrot went aboard for the long trip to their beloved Paris, their bodies pitching and rolling gently in the huge vats of brine. On the raft, the fourth man raised his head slightly as a wind freshened from the west. He watched until the schooner turned, shaping away for Australia, and disappeared over the rim of the horizon. Then he turned his raft, spread his sail of pandanus leaves, and headed the raft eastward, back toward New Caledonia, back toward home. Feeling somewhat dry after his exertion, the native plucked a hollow reed at random from the rushes on his raft. Slowly, Lazily, he stretched himself at full length in his accustomed place at the stern. He thrust the reed down into one of the bladders underneath the raft and drank his fill of sweet water. He had a dozen such storage bladders remaining, built into the floats at intervals above the water line, quite enough to last him safely home again. <laughs> Escape is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, and tonight brought you The Fourth Man by John Russell, adapted for radio by Irving Ravitch, and featuring Barry Kroger as the doctor, Joseph Kearns as Fenerou, Jay Novello as Parrot, Lou Merrill as the captain, Byron Kane as Morteau, and Eric Rolfe as the narrator. Music is conceived by Cy Fuhr and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Next week. You are groping 
in the dark of an African night, trapped on a dock above a crocodile-infested river, fighting for your life against a ruthless giant from whom you must escape. Next week, we escape with Robert Simpson's tenth story, John Jock Todd. Good night, then, until the same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We try to alternate weeks with two episodes of Escape one week, followed by two episodes of Suspense the following week. New episodes of 1001 Tales of Escape and Suspense are available every Sunday at noon Eastern Time. We always appreciate reviews. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.